Jesus is worthy of the most precious gifts we can offer. You're listening to Wonder Lake Bible Church, building mature followers of Jesus Christ. Find us online at wlbiblechurch.org. Now, here's Pastor Dan Cox with today's message. Well, folks, say a question that we often hear at this time of the year is, what'd you get for Christmas, right? Who's, who has been asked that somewhere? What'd you get? What'd you get, right? Well, sometimes I, you know, I get asked that as well. But uh, sometimes I remember when I was a little kid, when I was being asked, what did you get for Christmas? I think back to my favorite gift that I received as a child. And when I was a little kid, my favorite toy that I received for Christmas was an aircraft carrier, right? An aircraft carrier. Now, it was not actual size, which is good. That would have been, Mom would have had a hard time fitting that under the tree. But it was about this long and about this wide, and it even had airplanes on it that you could launch. There was a little lever. You'd put it on there and attach it, and then you pull that, and boom, and the planes would fly off. See, because that was back when I was in. You know when you're a kid, you go through these different phases of what you want to be when you grow up? So I had my phase for a while there when I was coming. I wanted to be a Navy fighter pilot. And so I was, I was going to do that. And so I wanted my very own aircraft carrier. So I, I had thing, and I loved that thing, played with it uh, often. But, and by the way, if anybody ever tells you that I was still playing with it when I was in high school, don't believe them. That's just not true. That's just a rumor there with that. So... Well, we, we do often get asked this time, what did you get for Christmas? But I want to edit that question a little bit and ask a very different question, and that is, what did you give? What did you give for Christmas? You know, Christmas is both about giving and receiving, giving and receiving to one another, but most importantly, it's about God's gift the gift that God has given us, God's giving of Christ to us and our receiving of that gift. Because clearly, Christ is the best Christmas present we've ever received, isn't he? So have you received that gift? But I want to turn that around a little bit, though, and say, well, what did you give? What can we give to Christ? And that's going to be our focus then here today. We've been looking at this uh, grand story, God's grand story. What is, what is creation all about? What is the, the human civilization all about? Uh, what is God doing? And we see that God's grand story, that overarching theme of all things, is God's creation of all things and creating human beings in his, in his image, made to know him, to have a relationship with him. But then how human beings, how we fell into sin, all of us then have been separated from God's love and, and fellowship by sin. But God has done something about that problem by providing a Savior, a Redeemer in Christ then, that through him we can have the forgiveness of sin, a, a righteous and, and holy relationship with God through him, and the promise then of eternal life. But then also that one day God is going to make all things new. He's not just saving human beings. He is saving the whole of creation. He's going to make all things new. And this is God's grand story. And we said that Christmas then is kind of the story within the grand story of how he humbled himself, how the Son of God humbled himself and came into the world in order that he might be our Savior and provide that redemption. 
Well, today is our last message in our Christmas series here then. We're looking at the story of the Magi, the story of the Magi in Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And what is the big idea? What is the main theme that I want us to take away from that? And that is this, is that Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy of the most precious gifts we can offer. You know, he is the most precious gift we can receive. And he is worthy then of the most precious gifts we can offer him then. Before we look at our text there in Matthew chapter 2, a little context... Matthew's gospel was written primarily to Jewish people in order to demonstrate that Jesus was the promised Messiah. And so we see a strong emphasis, therefore, on Old Testament prophecies and how they were fulfilled in Christ. Listen once again to Matthew's account of the birth of Christ and note how he quotes a prophecy from the book of Isaiah told in Matthew 1, verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means... God with us. And when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You know, following the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, Joseph and Mary stayed there for a year or two. And while they were there, they received distinguished visitors from the east. And these visitors from the east were a reminder that the Messiah was not intended only for the Jewish people, but rather he came to be a blessing for all people, everyone, that Jesus is not only the king of the Jews, he is the king of all people. He is the king of the earth. He is the king of the universe. And in Psalm 72, we see a a prayer for those kings who would follow in the line of David, that they would rule well. And it looks forward ultimately to the king, the Messiah, and it anticipates the blessings of his rule, of his millennial rule. And in it, we see all of the peoples of the earth coming to pay tribute to him and to honor him. And also, I would suggest, we see a foreshadowing here then of the wise men who would come from the east to bring gifts to the king, the Christ child. In Psalm 72, we said, May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May the kings of Tarshish and the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. 
And listen to what the prophet Isaiah tells us of this time in Isaiah chapter 60. He says, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And then you shall see and be radiant, your heart shall thrill and exult, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you, the wealth of the nations shall come to you, a multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah and all those from Sheba shall come, they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. So some people find this story of the wise man a little strange, doesn't it? You see, it's, it seems like an, an odd insertion or an odd event to the story of the birth of Christ. But when we read it in the light of prophecy about rulers of the earth who would come to bring tribute to the Messiah, it makes sense then why this event occurred shortly after the birth of Christ as a foreshadowing and a picture of what would happen one day and what will happen one day. So with that then, let's look at Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So here then we see first the birth, the birth of a king. You know, one of the great stories of Christmas is this account of the visit of the wise men from the east. And this delightful tale of strange men from some faraway land who brought gifts to the baby Jesus is filled with mystery and intrigue. And while it is filled with mystery, the journey of the wise men in and of itself was not so strange. In fact, we've seen there were prophecies that would speak of kings and, and who would come, who would bring tribute to this Messiah king. 
In fact, this was not the first time in Scripture that a son of David received gifts of gold and spices from a foreign dignitary. It was not the first time that someone had sought out a son of David for answers to the great questions of life. Listen to this passage from 1 Kings chapter 10. We're told, Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. And she came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. Isn't that a great phrase? There was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came, and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half was not told me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your men, happy are your servants, who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. And then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. So again, we ask then, who were these magi? Who were these wise men? Well, they were professors and philosophers of their day, essentially, originating from the east, most likely from the region of Babylonia. And these professionals were brilliant and highly educated scholars who were trained in medicine and history, in religion and prophecy and astronomy. And they were highly influential men who served as advisors to the king. Now, in spite of, the, uh, of some of our Christmas carols about we three kings, and that, uh, they were not kings themselves, but they were essentially they were king makers, if you will, advisors to the king. And you wonder, what could have possibly have motivated these men then to make a very treacherous 1,000-mile journey across the desert? And the answer to that question was, is that they came to see a new king who they knew would be a great king. Now, many Bible scholars believe that these wise men, these magi, were descendants of the wise men who served in the courts of Babylon, along with who was a young man who was taken from Israel into captivity in Babylon and who served in that court as a wise man. He was Daniel. That's right. Along with Daniel, when the Jews then were taken into captivity about 600 years earlier, many believed that these were descendants of that. And that is how these wise men, how they knew about the prophecies of the Jewish prophecies of a king who was to become, who would be not only the king of the Jews, but would be worshipped by 
all the world, that all the world would come to him. So that is most likely how they knew about that prophecy and what motivated them to come and want to see this great king who had been born. So they knew that this baby had been born, this king, but they didn't know exactly where. They did not know his name, but they set out in search of him. And so if you're going to look for the king of the Jews, where would you go? To the land of the Jews, the capital city there, seeking help. So it makes sense then why they would go to Jerusalem to, in order to welcome this newborn king of the Jews. And they assumed, well, this, this newborn king must be the son of Herod the Great, the king of the Jews. They assumed when they went there that everyone must know about this, but a great surprise awaited them. And verse 2 then adds a detail that has baffled and intrigued Bible scholars and astronomers for over 2,000 years. They said, we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. You wonder, what was this star that they saw? You know, there have been many theories about this. You've probably heard messages on this before. Why have you watched uh, specials on television about it? Some would say, well, maybe it was, a, it was a conjunction of the planets at the time. Uh, maybe it was uh, a comet that was passing by. Perhaps it was a supernova. How many of you have seen like some of these specials on TV or maybe even gone? I remember one time I even went to a planetarium where they had a, a show there that showed about all these things. And, and so there's all kinds of interesting theories about all of that. But, you know, in, in my opinion, all of those things ultimately come up short and don't fit. I don't think any of those really explain because there's timing issues with some of them. But also, though, here's the reason is I believe that this star, this light that they saw in the sky wasn't a comet, it wasn't a supernova, it wasn't a conjunction of planets, but rather I think it was a miraculous manifestation of the glory of God, his Shekinah glory as it is called sometimes. Why? Because of the way that this moved and it specifically guided then the wise men directly to a house in Bethlehem. Do you think there are many uh, comets or conjunctions of planets or supernovas that are going to guide you to a house over, over a house in Bethlehem? Probably not, right? <laughs> so I think that this was the Shekinah glory of God that shone. But whatever it was, it certainly got their attention. Because remember, they were students of the sky. And in that time then, it was not uncommon then for them to associate the birth of a great ruler with unusual heavenly phenomena. The sudden appearance then of this bright star, this bright light, would make perfect sense to them and would in fact fit what they already believed. But I would say, I would say without question though, this bright light was the supernatural work of God. And you might say that if God wanted to send a message to these men, he picked the perfect way to do it then. And, you know, most of our pictures of the Magi show three men riding camels across the desert. But I have to tell you, there is no way that these men traveled a thousand miles across the desert by themselves doing that. In those days, the only way you would travel that far across the desert would have been in a large caravan. And so the Magi would have been swept into Jerusalem with great pomp and circumstance at a minimum, they probably would have brought with them a full military escort 
along with their servants. And it has been suggested that the party could have amounted to more than 300 people. So next year when you're setting up your nativity scene, you know, first of all, don't put the three wise men there at the birth of Christ, right? That, they didn't come until about a year or two later, all right? Now, it's okay if you want to have them en route or something. That, that's okay if you want to do that. But remember, don't have... Nest- now, there may have been three of them. There may have been four. There may have been two. There may have been ten. We don't know how many there were, right? But remember, this party that they came in, they may have had hundreds who came with them. So when you're putting that out, so see if you can find like hundreds of little figurines and army guys and that to bring with them. That might be a little more accurate picture for your nativity scene than um, next year then with that. So you can see then how when this party arrives, not, not just three men and a camel coming, from the, coming off the desert, but this massive party of perhaps hundreds of people coming from the desert and saying, we've come to see the, the king, the newborn king. Where is he? How this would create quite a stir in Jerusalem, don't you think? Absolutely. And so then, no wonder then that all of Jerusalem was buzzing about this. And so they had no trouble then gaining an audience with the king of the Jews, Herod, Herod the Great. So they go to see Herod. Herod wants to know why they're there, why they are there. And he finds out that they have come to worship a new king. Now you might think, uh, I'm sure they were expecting to be greeted with with open arms and say, well, this is wonderful. Yes, why? Here's the king and be taken to a room in the palace and be shown this newborn king. But he wasn't there. He wasn't in that palace. So he wonders, well, where should we go? And so Herod turns to the scribes and the religious leaders for advice. And he asks, where is this child to be born? And the scribes don't have to look it up in their scrolls. They already know the answer. Why? Because about 700 years earlier, the prophet Micah and Micah 5.2 had predicted that Messiah's birth would occur where? In Bethlehem, in Bethlehem. And that was common knowledge in Israel. Uh, Little children would learn that in their Sabbath school before they were six years old. And it's hard to believe that Herod, the king of the Jews, didn't know this. But when you realize that Herod, the king of the Jews, in fact was not Jewish himself, maybe it's not so surprising that he did not know this. How could the king of the Jews not be Jewish? Well, because he was placed in that position by Rome. Right? He himself was not Jewish. And so Herod hears of this king and that this was a fulfillment of a prophecy, that he would be a great king and that he would be born in Bethlehem. And does he delight in this wonderful news that these visitors have brought? Well, he says he wants to go and worship, right? No, he was disturbed and fearful of this. Why? Because he was a paranoid and jealous and violent king who would share power with no one. And he saw this newborn king then as a threat to him, as a threat to his rule. And so he was disturbed a bit, but we're told that all Jerusalem was disturbed by this. This is good news, this birth of the king. But Herod finds out, and now all Jerusalem is disturbed. Why? Because they know 
Herod's reputation. They know his murderous reputation, how he had murdered members of his own family who he perceived as being threats to his power. And so certainly this newborn king would certainly be perceived as a threat to him, as a threat to his power. And so all Jerusalem was disturbed. So he finds out then from the Magi when the star appeared, and he instructs them to to go and see him and then come back to him and tell him exactly where the child is so he can go and worship him too. But of course, he had no intention of worshiping this young king. He wanted to know where he was so that he could kill him and eliminate that threat to his rule. As the Magi set out for Bethlehem, which is only five miles south of Jerusalem, the star that they had seen in the east suddenly reappeared. And verse 9 is very specific. It tells us the star went on before them until it came and stood over the very home where the baby Jesus was. Now, does that, again, does that sound like a comet to you or a conjunction of planets or a supernova? No. I think that is a, a supernatural manifestation of God's glory, of God's light that led them then specifically to this specific house in Bethlehem. And when they arrived there, they were overjoyed. You know, the Amplified Bible gives another perspective as it describes them as being thrilled with ecstatic joy. Thrilled with ecstatic joy. Because now the end of their long, hard journey was at hand. And so verse 11 tells us that on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. So the reason we know this was not the night he was born, right? They see he's a child in a house now, a year or two later. And so they saw him and they bowed down and they worshiped him. And so somehow these wise seekers from the east saw beyond the present and into the future. And in faith in that, in those prophecies, they worshiped him. It means they, re- they literally, they kissed toward and intensely adored him that they somehow knew that this child would one day rule the world and they were not ashamed to fall on their faces before him. This was a very, very unusual place to find a king who would one day rule all over the world, don't you think? They would have expected to find him in a palace, but he wasn't there. He was in a humble little house in a town called Bethlehem. And so they worshipped him And then they gave him gifts. They gave him gifts of gold, of incense, and of myrrh. They gave him to this king, Jesus the king. Said, Jesus is the king of the Jews, isn't he? But he is not only the king of the Jews. He is the king of all people. He is the king of the earth. And in fact, he doesn't just rule over the earth. He rules over what? Over all things, the universe. He is the king of the Jews, he's the king of the earth, and he is the king of the universe. And so they brought gifts then. They brought gifts fit for a king. The wise men brought very valuable and expensive gifts, which would be appropriate for a king. They were indeed gifts fit for a king. You know, it has been suggested that there is great symbolism in these gifts befitting the person and the mission 
of Jesus Christ. And I think that is true. But did the Magi understand and intend all of this symbolism? Probably not. But the symbolism is there, nevertheless, for us. What were these gifts that they bring? Well, first they brought gold. Gold was a gift that you would bring for a king because what gold is one of the rarest and the most expensive metals. And it represented the wealth and the power of a king. And so the gift of gold then shows us that Jesus is a king. In fact, he's not just a king. He is the king. He is the king of kings. They also then brought frankincense or incense. Incense was used in the temple worship of the Lord. The priest would use incense in the worship rituals. And it has been suggested then that the gift of incense shows us that Jesus is our priest. Gold, because he is our king. Incense, because he is our priest. And what did a priest do? A priest interceded for the people before God offering up sacrifices. And that's exactly what Jesus did, didn't he? He intercedes for us before God the Father. And he, did, he does not offer up daily sacrifices of animals, but he offered up what? Himself, the one for all time, perfect sacrifice. We also see then that they brought him myrrh. Myrrh was a kind of perfume that was made from the leaves of a rose. And when a person died, myrrh was used to anoint the body and to prepare it for burial. In John chapter 19, verse 39, it tells us that after Jesus died, his body was wrapped in linen along with 75 pounds of myrrh and other spices. So the gift of myrrh then pictures then his suffering and his death. It shows us then that Jesus is our Savior. So they brought him gold, incense, and myrrh, valuable gifts. Did they understand the symbolism? Probably not. But again, I think it's there. Gold as our king, incense as our priest, and myrrh as our savior. So this is what the wise men brought to this child king. And I might ask you then, today then, what will you, what will you offer the king? What gift would you give to Christ the king? Now, some of us here may have some gold. I won't ask you to raise your hands, but uh, some of us may have some gold, but I doubt that any of us have any incense or myrrh. Does anybody have any frankincense here? Anybody have any? Okay. I I know. You got one of those little uh, things that you get, those little little kits that has a little bit of gold flakes and frankincense and myrrh in it, right? Just frankincense. All right. Okay. Okay. Or not Frankenstein, as little kids like to say, and as the one in the, uh, the video uh, last week said, right? So no, so gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Some of us may have gold, and some of us may have a little bit of incense and a little bit of myrrh from those little kids there. But I doubt too many of us have those. And I don't think that's what we should bring to this king. What shall we give him then? What is an appropriate gift for us to give to him? Well, I would tell you, I think Scripture tells us what that appropriate gift would be. I would suggest we look right here in Romans chapter 12, where he says, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, 
holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So I would suggest that a gift fit for a king that you can give him today, and I can give him today, is you, yourself. You are the gift to give him, the gift of your life, of your heart, of who you are, all that you have. The best gift you can give Jesus is yourself, your life, your worship, your love, your time, your treasure, your talents, your service to him and to others. But I think of all of those things, the most important thing, the most important gift that we can give to Christ is our love, is our hearts. You know, I've told this story before. I'm going to share it with you again. I think it's appropriate now. It is, it's hard to believe it's been, uh, boy, over eight years ago now when you gave me that wonderful gift of that trip to Israel. And I remember at that time, uh, shortly before going on that trip, uh, I felt like I was in this place of like I was in danger of burning out, you know, where you feel like the stress and the pressures of, of life and ministry and all of that were just building, building, building. And I was starting to feel like it had gotten to here where you're just kind of like doing this, trying to keep your head above the water, that that is how I was feeling at that time. And, uh, and as it turns out, and I didn't know it at the time, but as it turns out, I think that, that gift that you gave me of that trip there was a part of God's answer to dealing with that in my life, that's, that stress and that sense of burnout. Because when I, I went there, uh, yes, it was wonderful to see. It was wonderful to see the sights and to see those places. But it was also something that it was a, it was a life-changing experience for me um, in not just seeing these places, but in reflecting on the truth of God's Word and what God's Word tells us happened in these places. It happened then and there. But that truth is applying then to us. All these thousands of years later, no matter where we are, these wonderful truths of God's word and just bringing that home to me in a new and powerful way. And there was one, uh, and so there, there were a number of highlights from that. But there was one particular moment that I will never forget this. And that is we were in the, the city of Capernaum. That was where... Jesus, most of Jesus' ministry took place, was in that region around Capernaum on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. And um, when Jesus would stay there, he would stay with Peter in Peter's home there. And you can see Peter's home there in Capernaum. Now they built this spaceship-looking church that sits over the top of it now. But you can still see the home underneath there, or the remains of it, if you will. And... Uh, and we then, so we saw all of that, but then one of our, our Bible uh, study, our Bible group leaders, uh, we, took, we went out not too far from there to the beach then, from there along the Sea of Galilee, and he read an account then, and gave a devotional then from that. And the devotional was about this healing of a man. Uh, but remember that story of a man who his friends wanted to get him to Jesus, and the crowds were just too much, so they cut a hole in the roof, and they lowered him in there with that. That's where that took place, was there. And so the text is talking about all this stress and this pressure 
that there was about how the, the, the never-ending human need that Jesus you know, ministered to daily. But then in the text it tells how early that next morning he went off to a lonely place. And so we were standing in what would have been a lonely place then at that time. And we read that. And he gave this devotional then about um, finding our strength in Christ, how we can get overwhelmed by life, overwhelmed by, by human need, overwhelmed by ministry. And by the way, you don't have to be a pastor to be involved in ministry, right? Who are, who are, who are ministers in this room? Every single one of us, right? And so he talked about the need then to find, to, to, to just get away from all of that and to spend time alone with God in his presence then. Well, that really struck my heart. But here is the thing is, is, is later that, that evening then, I was able to get alone for a little bit with uh, this instructor. He was a, a man named Larry Cohen. He was a, he's a Messianic Jew. And he is a good friend of Michael Rydelnik. The tour was being led by Michael Rydelnik. Many of you know him from Moody. And Erwin Lutzer, from, uh, who was the pastor of Moody Church at that time. So it was really a, a fabulous trip then. And, uh, but, but Larry was the one who had given this, so I got a chance to, to talk with Larry, and I told him how much I'd appreciated his devotional. It kind of touched my heart. But then he said something that I'll, I'll never forget, and that is he said, God doesn't want what you do for him. He wants you. He wants your heart. God doesn't want what you do for him. He wants you. He wants your heart. And you know what? That's exactly what I needed to hear then. And that has, has, has brought me great comfort you know, in, in all the years since then. And I have to tell you, you know, God ministered to me through that. And, um, and ever since that time, you know what? I have never felt that same sense of pressure and burnout ever again since then. Now, that doesn't mean I don't feel the pressure of life and the pressures of ministry sometimes. We all do, Right? But it was no longer that threat that it was the way it felt that it was coming to, coming to be to me at that point. Because now I found, oh, I can put that aside and find my rest in him because God doesn't want what I do. He wants me. He wants my heart. This doesn't mean it's not important what we do, right? God has given us work to do. But that's not what he wants most. What he wants most is you, is he wants your heart. He wants you to know him. He wants you to know his love. So I would suggest then, what is the best gift that we can give him? Is to give him our heart. Give him our love. Give him our life, our all. So what? What should we do? We said Jesus is worthy of the most precious gifts we can offer. That's not gold or incense or myrrh. It's your life. It's your worship. It's your love. It's your time. It's your all. But of all of those things, that most important thing we can give him is our love, to give him our hearts. We're at the beginning of a new year here, and I wonder, do you need a fresh start? I want to quickly share with you something I always... uh, This is always meaningful to me, but especially at this time of the year, I like to think on this and reflect on this. I find this very encouraging. 
As we are about to begin a new year, I love that sense of freshness that a new year can bring. Anybody here need a fresh start? Anybody feel like you use that? I, I, I feel that way. We're told in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. But I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus first possessed me. No, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. So in closing our service here today, I say give Christ the most precious gift you can give which is you, your heart, your love. You're all. But maybe you need to forget the past. That doesn't mean forget the the lessons learned from the past, but it means what? Not to be held down by the sins, the mistakes, and the failures. To forget those things and do what? To look forward to what lies ahead. You know, we are all running a race as believers in Jesus Christ. Look forward to that finish line ahead. Look forward to what God has in store for you, what God has in store for your life in the time that he has given you. And then press on. Don't let anything distract you or get in the way from pressing on toward that goal, that upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our Savior, who is the greatest and the most wonderful gift that has ever been given. Thank you, Lord, that through faith in him we have forgiveness of sin, the gift of righteousness, the gift of eternal life, the gift of eternal of being eternally in your presence forever and ever on a new earth. Thank you, Lord, for that blessing. And Father, may we then give back to you, give to your Son, the gift that he is due. May we give him our hearts, give him our lives, give him our love. Thank you, Lord, that you don't want what we do for you. You want us. You want our hearts. And I pray then, Lord, that we would give you our hearts this year and every year. Thank you that we can have a fresh start every day because the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all of our sins. May we forget the past. May we Look forward to what lies ahead and may we press on knowing that you are a good and faithful God who will complete the good work that you have begun in us. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. For more information about Wonder Lake Bible Church, visit wlbiblechurch.org. 